0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in all things healthcare, whether it is healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. As you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, we discuss all topics of healthcare. But today, I have two amazing guests, Dr. Akari and Dr. Bonn. They are both PhDs and they are both cytogeneticists. I wanted to to really tape a show on the world of cytogenetics. This is a mysterious world for some of you, especially those of you who are not in the medical profession. You are maybe students, family members, patients. What is the world of cytogenetics? You know, if you go back in history, you are going to realize that we started knowing that chromosomes and the way they are behaving, the way they behave, the way they break, the way they multiply, the way they whatever they do, do have an impact on cancer, whether it is how we treat cancer or how we prognosticate cancer. I was a faculty at some point at the University of Chicago where Janet Rowley was a professor. Janet Rowley is a pioneer that identified that the chromosomal translocation between chromosomes 9 and 22 is pathognomonic for the diagnosis of a disease called chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML. Subsequent to that, we were able to identify what this chromosomal abnormality led to, and before you know it, we found out that there's a drug called imatinib or glivec that targets this particular protein that is generated from the chromosomal abnormality, and that leads to treating CML very effectively. So we know that there are are many examples of this, but I bring this up because it's really historical and it's really important. So the world of cytogenetics, where it is, what do cytogeneticists actually do in the lab? Do we need the world of cytogenetics? I heard that cytogenetics are dead, that we don't need cytogenetics anymore because we can do whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing, whole transcriptome sequencing. Well, the only way to really explain this is by bringing folks who do this day in and day out. So I really hope you will enjoy this episode I taped towards the end of 2022 with doctors Akari and Bon on the world of cytogenetics. As I always advise you, please let me know how I am doing. And please let me know by Sending me a tweet at Shadi Nabhan, visiting my website, nabhan.com. And don't forget to ask for the infamous Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t shirt. It will be my pleasure to send that to you if you are a loyal listener. Without further ado, the world of cytogenetics simplified. Linda, uh, a little bit, uh, introduce yourself, and then we will move on to Yasmin and Dr. Atkari.
1: Yes, so thank you, Shadi, for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, it is about a week after Ash. Um, it's really cold here in Minnesota. I think the high was minus five today, so I do have um, just one sweater, not two. I do have heat in my house. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I am... I'm a cytogeneticist and molecular geneticist at the Mayo Clinic. I've been at the Mayo Clinic since 2015. I received, or I guess by way of introduction to my background, I received my PhD in 2004 from Tufts University, where I became really interested in cancer biology. So I was working in a laboratory where we were trying to understand how the b able oncogene caused b ALL in mice. Because I didn't want to only study cancer in mice, I went on to do a postdoc at um, Cornell in New York City. And there I became very interested in multiple myeloma research. I... Continue that postdoc for three years, and then actually did another postdoc where I was looking at trying to understand how activation-induced cytidine deaminase, which is AID, is important for class switch recombination and somatic hypermutation. Now, as a you know, I did a postdoc six years, but the reality is that my husband, who's also a scientist, got a job in Minnesota. So we moved as a family to Minnesota. And in Minnesota, I obtained a non-tenure track research assistant scientist position. And this is, um, I was grateful for this position and I was in this position for two years, but, I had some concerns about my viability of the fact that it was really not a tenure track position. So completely serendipitously, I attended a faculty meeting where the sighted at University of Minnesota mentioned that they had an opening for a fellowship opportunity. At this point, um, I'm in my mid thirties and I had always imagined that I would be running a research lab. And the thought of going into a fellowship program was really scary for me, but I just took the plunge. (sighs) I did cry a little bit (laughs) because I was really nervous about, you know, I knew nothing about um, this kind of career path because I wasn't told anything about this with a PhD. So it was a three-year program and I loved it. I loved it so much. I was so immensely grateful to have the opportunity to do the fellowship program. I completed that in 2015 and joined the Mayo Clinic, and I've been at Mayo Clinic since then.
0: Well, fascinating journey. And we're going to talk about that, what it means to be a cytogeneticist, because I think some of the listeners may not understand what it actually means, so we need to clarify that. Yeah. Yasmin, how about your journey? How did you get to where you are right now?
2: So, so I'm not, I'm, you know, Linda's very brave and talked a little bit about timeline. I'm not going to talk about timeline because I'm a lot older than, than Linda. Um, so I actually, you know, I came from Lebanon um, after having done a, a Bachelor of Science um, in Lebanon and uh, came to Ohio State for my PhD in molecular genetics. Um, I did a postdoc on Fanconi anemia. And at that time, this was my first encounter with a human disease as opposed to just the basic research on, like, mitosis, right? Um, and then, you know, I, I wanted to uh, have a child and left work a little bit and then came back to Fanconi anemia. And then also just by conversation with my mentor, he said, why don't you do a clinical genetics fellowship? And I'm like, what is that? And that's how that door was open. So very parallel to Linda, it was really a serendipitous find. And the reason why this is really important is because I think we are producing a lot of PhDs, uh, much more than academic physicians may be able to accommodate. And there is a huge clinical path out there that needs this kind of expertise and need this kind of thinking and troubleshooting um, that we both would kind of benefit, right? And this is this is um, my kind of energy into talking, you know, about about this. So, so right now, I am a clinical cytogeneticist and a clinical molecular geneticist. I've also done PhD medical genetics, which allows for genetic counseling, um, and I do work as a senior director at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. The journey, and I think the message here that we would like to relay is that there aren't enough of us. You know, Shari, I'm sure you, you are very aware that genetics or laboratory genetics now touches every aspect of medicine, whether it's cancer or pediatric or prenatal. And I think, you know, the need to have experts in, in laboratory genetic testing has increased beyond our ability to recruit to the field and that's
0: why we're here. That's interesting. So let's step back a little bit. Linda, when we say, when you say I'm a clinical cytogeneticist, that sounds like a foreign language, somebody who is listening, who is not, you know, what what does that actually mean? What do you do every day?
1: Yep. Yeah, that's a good question. So it was a foreign language to me too um, in my PhD training. I, I didn't actually understand what this field means, but I can try to explain it to the listeners. So cytogenetics is the understanding of chromosomes. And there are the need to understand the chromosome structure really is important for many different areas of medicine. In my specific area, I am focusing on heme. I love heme, very much so, and specifically B cells, but I can explain essentially what the day-to-day activity is. So when I'm on a clinical sign-out day, so for example, a lymphoid in our um, laboratory, we divide up the work in terms of content areas. So on for lymphoid, we would be then receiving of the specimens that have been sent for, for example, a lymphoid malignancy, a high-grade B-cell lymphoma, where we would need to look for a micro rearrangement, BCL2 and BCL6. So we would be performing FISH testing, which is fluorescence in situ hybridization, where we have DNA probes that are complementary to specific regions of the chromosome of the genome that are fluorescently labeled. So we're specifically looking for, for example, a MIC rearrangement where we would have a split of a probe. Or if we're looking for, let's say, a MIC IGH rearrangement, we're looking for fusion of MIC and IgH. In the lymphoid bin work, we also look at multiple myeloma. And in the context of multiple myeloma, we're looking for standard risk or high risk abnormalities. So we're able to identify whether a patient has an 1114 multiple myeloma that maybe has a TP 53 deletion. And that kind of information will help inform the clinician the kinds of treatment, and at least the prognostication for that specific patient. While I do love heme, I do also occasionally perform a, the interpretation for a test called chromosomal microarray. We do this test also in the context of heme malignancies. But for example, for chromosomal microarray, this is the first tier test for a individual, often a child that has an intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. So here we're looking genome-wide at copy number changes, and when we identify a significant copy number change, our job is to write an interpretive report that will then be given to the clinician and patient. So this is essentially the day-to-day in terms of the clinical interpretation, but there are other aspects of the job. For example, um, like many jobs, we also have meetings. We meet with our team, our clinical team. We also, um, discuss um, aspects of assay validation and also just management of the laboratory. If there are any issues that come up, we need to to deal with those and figure out how we're going to troubleshoot various clinical laboratory issues.
0: So Yasmin, is it fair to say then that it is just broad strokes? One is performing the test itself and two is interpreting the test you do both performing and interpreting
2: yeah so shadi if i take just a little bit of a step back i mean just just for the listeners um as linda mentioned any alteration in those chromosomes you know one copy from the chromosome comes from the mom one copy from the dad any alterations has been documented to cause disease Right. So whether on the prenatal side or the pediatric or the cancer, right? And the science of cytogenetics is really responsible for detecting those alterations. So to answer your question, I think you're right. Our 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 kind of our profession has two sides. Well, actually, I, I would I want to say it has three sides. One is the actual um, technical aspect. So doing the tests. Yeah, on, on the bench in the lab, right? And most of most of the cases, um, laboratory directors such as ourselves are the ones who are interpreting the results that come out of a team, a team of genetic technologists that do the wet bench work. So the data comes to us, and then we put it together in an interpretive report because the data comes as raw data, right? If, if you just put it immediately into the hands of the physician, it's, it's very, very ununderstandable, right? There is a lot of nomenclature, there's a lot of technicalities. And so we take that data and we put it in an interpretive report, meaning what does that mean? That alteration in the chromosome, what does it mean? Does it have diagnostic significance? Can we diagnose this child or this um, patient with a certain disease? Second, is is there a prognostic factor to that test and third are there any therapies related to that particular chromosome alterations so the the, the role of the technologies is to actually do the test our role is to take that raw data and put it into inter, interpretive report
0: makes sense but but let me just piggyback on this these are again uh, for listeners this is a blood test Saliva test, bone marrow test. What 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 is the actual specimen that you're doing the test on?
1: All of the above. Okay. It, it really depends on the um, indication. So for a patient with multiple myeloma, a bone marrow biopsy is typically performed uh-huh. and we receive the bone marrow. We also work very closely with heme with our HemePath colleagues mm-hmm. that will do, for example, flow cytometry or other types of testing. And another aspect to the work is integrating the information from different areas. So for example, HemePath, taking a look at the various results that they receive and how we can implement that into our interpretation to provide the most helpful information for the clinician and the patient. So the
2: other specimen is um, tumors, tumor biopsies, Mm -hmm. brain tumors, solid tumors, lung.
0: So basically what you're doing is you're taking whatever is sent your way to the lab from the cancer center or from the pediatrics or from wherever it is. And your job is to identify if there's some chromosomal breakage in whatever you got sent. Okay so what Linda told me earlier, Linda, you mentioned something called uh, fish I believe you're trying to allude to this and I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that a lot of listeners don't know what you mean by fish so you're gonna simplify that to us because because there's you know uh, how do you do how do you dis, how do you find out about whether there's a chromosomal breakage or not? You know, maybe take us through, through this, and then Yasmin, after Linda finishes, maybe you can explain why this is even important. Like who, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, prognostic or therapeutic or other aspects, but illustrating this with examples, I think, will help listeners understand.
1: So, fish is one of the the most one of the most common assays that we in any cytogenics laboratory is performing. So, in a very simplistic way. FISH is again, fluorescence in situ hybridization. So a specimen comes to our laboratory and let's take bone marrow in this example. There are three main types of FISH tests but they all require receiving the sample, creating, fixing the cells, creating fixed cell pellets dropping onto glass slides, denaturing. So the DNA, so we're looking at DNA alterations, the DNA, the double helix has to be split so that the complementary fish probe that is targeting a very specific region of the genome can bind. And those fish probes have a fluorescent signal so that when you look under the microscope, You can actually look at individual cells and the kind of fish abnormalities that you see. So let me explain the three different kinds of fish. But
0: but, but Linda, with fish, you kind of know what you're quote unquote fishing for.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Like it's not really, I'm going to see what happens. Like you really have to say, I'm going to look for this particular abnormality and I'm going to see if it's there or not.
1: That is absolutely correct. Um, And that is a bit of a limitation because if you don't know what you're fishing for, you don't, you just are not going to be able to find it. So you have to have kind of an idea of what to look for. So again, going back to myeloma as the example, Mm -hmm. there are specific recurrent genetic abnormalities that are associated with a different disease outlook. And I mentioned three kind of main types of fish probes. So in one simplistic way, you can have a fish probe that targets the immunoglobulin heavy chain gene that is commonly associated with a translocation. And you can have two fish probes that are labeled with a different color. And you're basically looking for a split of this fish probe. And so that tells you in a normal circumstance, you would have just two fusion signals, but if you have a split, you have a red and the green that are separated from one another. The other type is dual fusion. So in a normal situation where you would have two genes that are on different chromosomes far away from each other, but in this situation, you know that in cases where there is, for example, an 11 translocation, cyclin D1 that's on chromosome 11 happens to be right next to IGH, immunoglobulin, that's on chromosome 14. They have, these FISH probes have different colors. So when they are right next to each other due to a chromosomal translocation, it shows up as a fusion. And then the last of the three types of FISH probes is an enumeration. So we're essentially just counting dots, I guess, in a to be simplistic. And we often look for, for example, a TP53 deletion in a patient with myeloma. In a normal circumstance, you would have two normal copies of chromosome 17P where the TP53 gene is located. But if you only have one copy, you know in that individual that there is a deletion of TP53 because the FISH probe is sitting on TP53. So I hope that the listeners understand a little bit about what FISH is. Again, it's a very targeted type of assay where we use DNA probes that go directly to a specific region of the genome. And we're looking for copy differences, differences in the amount of the fish probes, or even a, a movement of the fish probes from one location to another.
0: But Yasmin, don't they also sometimes do regular cytogenetics without fishing for anything? How, how, how is that different?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's really interesting because cytogenetics, Shadi, is a science, right? It is the understanding of chromosomes, Within cytogenetics, there are several techniques, just like under molecular genetics, there are PCR or sequencing or southern, you know, blood. Under cytogenetics, there are many kinds of techniques. Fish is one technique that we call, it's a little bit biased, right? Because like you said, you have to know what you're fishing for in order to fish. Whereas there are other like chromosome banding, just G-band analysis where you look at the karyotype, right? Um, that's a, an unbiased view of the genome. You just look at the whole cell, the chromosome complement of a whole cell, and you see what is missing, what is translocated, what is deleted, what is duplicated. That is an unbiased look at, at the genome. And, and from that- but
0: how, how do you do that? Like with the fish, I think, Linda explained, you have these probes and all that stuff that they light up. When you want to look at the whole genome how, how do you actually do it
2: so you have to take the specimen that comes to the lab you have to make it divide meaning you have to have the cells enter mitosis in culture in vitro right like in vitro that's right but out of the body you put them in a in a in a beautiful kind of liquid that is very rich media and and you allow the cells to divide in culture Then you take those cells, you drop, again, you drop them on glass slides, and you hope that you have arrested some of these cells in uh, in mitosis, right? The cell goes through a cell cycle. You wanna arrest them in mitosis where the chromosomes are condensed. When the chromosomes are condensed, they're visually attainable, so we can see them, right? As opposed to a soup of DNA like spaghetti. When we put them on, when you drop these, these mitotic cells on a slide, they all kind of stay in a way, and there are techniques to do that, which I'm not going to belabor, but um, they're basically a way to keep each chromosome co- component of a cell together. So you can count 46 chromosomes in a human cell, and then you align them homolog by homologue by staining them with a specific stain plus trypsin that allows for banding. What does that mean? What does bending mean? Bending is a pattern. Chromosome one has a bending pattern that is very different from chromosome two bending pattern. So you have chromosome one from mom and dad, you align them and you see, okay, are they intact? Are they the same? Is there anything deleted? Anything duplicated? Anything translocated? Anything inverted? Anything inserted? All these chromosomal abnormalities can be seen by looking that G-banded cell. So the the really the trick of it all is that this is a technique that has been, you know, that has been in use for more than 50 years. Is it the best five, zero, five, zero?
0: Did you say 50? Five zero.
2: zero. Yeah. Bending of chromosome, it's been since 1971 by Casper said. Now, when we look at it, and this is why we would love to, to, you know, address the issue that cytogenetics is dead. The science of cytogenetics cannot die. Techniques can But
0: die. But who's saying the cytogenetic science is dead?
2: A lot of people are saying that. Mm. Um, I, think, I think because they have been, I mean, since the, the sequencing of the human genome, right, Um, when it was completed. I think a lot of people thought that we can really now, the tell-all is gonna be sequencing. So understanding the AGTC sequence of the genome, right? Um, And I think in a lot of ways, we have come to an amazing progress in understanding the sequence of the human genome and how disease comes up. But the science of understanding chromosome structure, not the sequence, is really kind of taking a back burner
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it's, it's, it's hurting the field because the young people here, cytogenetics is dead. We're never going to do cytogenetics anymore. We're just going to sequence is naive and really is kind of shortening the, the um, you know, the expertise in our field.
0: So let's step back a little bit because I want to get back to this. I think that's a very important point that you bring. There are obviously the descending view about cytogenetics. So I'd like to really delve into this just a little bit to better understand that, that view, although we don't have anybody on this show to represent that view. But how long does this process take? So if I send you a specimen for... Uh fish, Linda. And if I send you a specimen for regular banding, yes, I mean how long how long do you need to do how, how long does it take you, Linda?
1: So for fish, actually it's fairly quick. So you know, if we're comparing to something like next generation sequencing, we can be much quicker than that. So our quickest fish assay, which is involving PML RARA and also BCR Able, we can complete that work within two hours so we can oh, wow. result out if a specimen is coming into our lab in the morning the clinician can get that result in the afternoon so those are highly prioritized fish tests Got um on. an acute leukemia clear it has to be overnight i mean we need to have that, that result asap
0: and then for regular bending yes mean
1: regular banding depending on the specimen so
2: let's take a bone marrow i think you have to culture it for 24 to 48 hours depending on the disease you're looking for Mm -hmm. i think within four days or five days because we also have to allow for analysis um which is which is kind of an involved process and takes a lot of expertise but i think within four or five days you we we would issue a report
0: so why why do i need regular banding though i mean it seems like fish is going to tell me exactly the chromosomes I'm looking at. So does this nullify the need for regular karyotyping?
2: Well, no, because fish again is targeted. What if you're don't you do not you do not know what you're looking for? Yeah, but
0: for? my question is are there situations like I presume in leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, sure. you already know what you're looking for. Yeah. So you what you're saying Yasmin is there are certain diseases where you don't know and you're just kind of looking at right. Okay. So, so Linda, take me through that descending view. I'm very intrigued by this. Um, mm-hmm. I honestly did not know that there is a descending view to the world of cytogenetics, but it's really important to understand that. So, for what do I'm sure you know people who 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 have these views. What do they say?
1: Well, I can sometimes. I also have those views too. Um, so again, going back to myeloma what we have learned and not just myeloma but um other heme malignancies we as a cytogenetics laboratory had started a ngs type test Mm -hmm. called mate pair sequencing which we're not doing currently but this was um established in um within our laboratory probably around 2016, and it was essentially a less expensive version of whole genome sequencing. We used this technology and we realized that, wow, our gold standard FISH test is sometimes wrong. So as an example...
0: Is it, is it wrong because technical difficulty or the probe is wrong? Like why would it be? It seems like it's too specific to be wrong.
1: It's wrong in some ways because of the biology. So let's go back to, let's say mantle cell lymphoma with an 1114 rearrangement. Often you would have a direct 1114, a balanced rearrangement. But in some instances, you may have a small portion of the immunoglobulin Promoter enhancer inserted upstream of cyclin D1. Or, for example, we learned that MIC rearrangements are not always represented by an, a balanced an 814 rearrangement. You may have a small enhancer that is very close to MIC, where your MIC probe will be completely normal. It's not that there's a technical issue, it's that the biology is telling us that sometimes you can have a rearrangement, but not have a disruption of the fish probe. So for a dissenting view, I do think that in the future, we will most likely be doing whole genome sequencing that will allow us the opportunity to see within the genome, all of the structural rearrangements, copy number, and single nucleotide variants, that will allow us a a much more precise way to look at the genome that the fish technology, that will be better than the fish technology. But one point that I do wanna make is that if you look at a chromosome study or fish, that's actually on a single cell level. But if you're talking about something like whole genome sequencing, typically it's bulk. And so the, the sensitivity is not going to be as great as if you were to look at a fish test where we can identify three you know, cells that have a BCR-able translocation out of, for example, 200 cells.
0: But yes, I mean, I mean it seems like, like the descending view is proposing that if I'm getting my information through NGS, or through whatever other technology, and I'm not missing anything through that technology, then I'm just consolidating. I'm just doing one test versus doing this and that. I mean, I I can understand that. I can understand that. They're not saying it's it's not a good test or a bad field. They're just saying, you know, we've evolved. We've progressed. Science has moved on from 1971 what do you say to yeah, that
2: no i think that's exactly true shadi i i i wish so i'm going to elaborate a little bit on the concern the concern is not that newer technologies are not better they are whole genome sequencing right now can detect everything that a a, a classical g banding classical karyotyping can and perhaps more because it allows us to really you know, to really do high resolution, it also allows us to get sequence information, not just the big structural you know, abnormalities of the chromosome. The concern is cytogenetics is not karyotyping. Cytogenetics is the science of understanding chromosomes. And if we don't have that fundamental knowledge of understanding chromosome, interpreting whole genome sequencing data is gonna be very challenging. And our concern, both Linda, myself, and a lot of cytogeneticists out there is that we are diluting that knowledge, that interest in looking at the whole genome view of a single karyotype and visually understand the chromosome interactions and then applying that knowledge to newer technologies. Mm-hmm. I have totally, I totally agree with the fact that all technologies evolve All sciences evolve. I think karyotype is also going to evolve. And it has. I mean, whole genome sequencing is extremely powerful. But from an educational perspective, it's still very important to understand the fundamentals of the science, which is how chromosomes move.
0: So, Linda, the test, the cytogenetic test, whether it is fish or bending, or is this something available... Anywhere like you know any hospital practice. I mean how available is this test in small community hostel somewhere?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I mean I I work in a I fairly mid-sized to large reference laboratory. Um most I I think it's fair to say that most large university hospitals do have a cytogenetics laboratory or a molecular genetics laboratory. Although I don't have data to support this, I have um, observed that um, there may be some smaller laboratories that are struggling a little bit more. I think that I am a little bit concerned that over time, Um, this kind of testing will be focused more on the larger laboratories, especially when um, we do move to more um, expensive NGS type tests. It may be difficult for smaller laboratories to um, keep up with that type of, you know, purchasing of capital equipment, assay validation, which is very expensive. Um, But for the most part, at any given, even community hospital or community setting, um, a clinician should be aware of where to send the specimen for cytogenetic testing or have it performed in-house.
0: Go ahead. Yasmin, take me through the relationship between you and the cytogeneticist, this is the correct description, and the pathologist. Right. Not the clinician, because <clears throat> as a clinician, um, I need you and I need your help and interpretation. I'll be the first to say that. But where does the pathologist fits in the equation and specifically the molecular pathologist? We're seeing in pathology, there are some folks who are called molecular pathologists. Yeah. So do you go and meet with the pathologist and you go over the report? Do you just issue that? Does the pathologist have an input? Like how? What is the intersection between the cytogenetic lab and the pathology lab or the molecular pathology lab?
2: So so I think think I'm going to step back just for a second and say that in our field, in our our kind of profession, there are two big buckets of work we do. One are the diseases that you are born with, and those are constitutionals. And this is where we do the pediatric and the prenatal. Those really do not have, we have no interactions with the pathologists. Right, because the specimens come to us, we decide. I mean, we decide. We test and we say yes. This child has trisomy 21, right, or Down syndrome, or this child has a deletion of chromosome 22 and therefore has a heart defect. Um, those are diseases that people are born with, and pathologists really there's very minimal interactions. When there's really really valuable interaction is in the cancer field, right? Because this is where tissues come through pathology. We interact very, very closely with hematopathologists when we have hematologic malignancy. We interact very much with the um, surgical pathologists when there are solid tumors that we have to look into to test. So, you know, the, the patho- I have to say, the pathologists do rely on cytogeneticists to see if there are any chromosomal abnormalities. Molecular pathologists and molecular geneticists, such as Linda and myself, we kind of work very closely in cancer. But one thing I, I do want to I, I mention, because you asked a very, very important question, Shadi, about is cytogenetics um, available to everybody, right? And is whole genome sequencing available to everybody? And I do want to pause on this because this is really, in my mind, and perhaps I'm biased, this is about global equity, right? So I have the privilege to sit as the genetics expert on the WHO classification of tumors. And I know that you have many podcasts about uh, about this particular topic. When we sit together as a, as, a, as a, you know, editorial board and say, okay, we're gonna classify these tumors and we're gonna say, what are the essential molecular pathology tests that we need to do? We very much, de- you know, keep in mind that there are some countries who cannot afford to do whole genome sequencing. So we have to also say, you can do cytogenetics. It is a well-established technology. I mean, not technology, it's a well-established science and karyotyping is a well established available technology within cytogenetics.
0: Yeah. So, so, so I, I want to try to understand the, 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 I mean, how many of you are there? Like, are we, where we talk about, like, is there a society of cytogeneticists? Like, you know, I, I know there's maybe 10, 12,000 oncologists out there. I mean, do you have, is there a thousand? Is there 5,000? Are there 20,000? Like how many of you are there? I'm trying to match the supply and demand a little bit. I'm trying to understand, is there a real shortage or is there really a perception of a shortage?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I can't tell you, Yasmin, do you know how many total cytogeneticists are there? But I can I can tell you that probably every year about 50 or so do get boarded in the American...
0: um, That's nothing. 50? 5-0? Yeah. That's nothing. I think in the
2: U.S., the latest estimate is less than 300 cytogeneticists.
0: So the entire country, the entire United States of America (laughs) America has 300 cytogeneticists. Yes. So... Wow, I'm a little bit. I, I'm very taken aback by the number because I, I'm. I mean, is I'm presuming this is why there's a lot of send-out tests because most hospitals then won't have local expertise. No, that's correct. I mean, there's no way. I mean, if you have one per hospital that only covers three hundred hospitals.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a yes. That's true. Yeah. So
0: so how. I mean, something is missing here. It's either there's, I mean, something, there's a missing link. Help me understand how can we, if there's so much need for this, how can we only have 300?
2: Because it's centralized.
0: It's centralized?
2: It's um, it's, it's, it's in a way centralized, yeah. I don't think every community hospital can really afford. Um, yeah, so they
0: can send to Mayo and- or they send to elsewhere.
2: I mean, Linda, am I am I correct in that? I think there's a lot of centralization of, of cytogenetics, and, and it's also from a CLIA perspective, it is considered high complexity, right? Just like just
1: like molecular genetics, it's yeah. high complexity. I, so they, they they need to be expertise. I think right. a bottleneck could also be, and this is not you know a major area of expertise um, regarding the education, but um, there are a certain number of training programs, ABMGG, American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics training programs, and the training programs may only have two, three slots per given year. And so Mm -hmm. that, you know, does require resources. So um, some training programs may not have abundant resources to train 10 people, for example. So I think that that could be a potential bottleneck as well, but there are definitely, there is centralization. There are very large laboratories, um, LabCorp, you know, for example, that um, are receiving numerous, you know, probably thousands of specimens per day um, to do this work. But
0: I mean, how many, how many cytogeneticists does LabCorp employ? I mean, that's, I'm trying to think if the entire country has only 300, you could literally demand doubling your salary and they're going to have to pay you. Right,
2: but I, I want to also clarify that that less than 300 are actually active clinical cytogeneticists. It is possible that some cytogeneticists have gone into the industry sector and they're right. not actively signing out cytogenetics reporting, right? Right, right,
1: right So, right. So
2: I think, I think that, you know, Big laboratories do employ a lot, um, but there's also distribution of demand, right? Some hospitals um, specialize in prenatal and and pediatric. Other hospitals specialize in oncology, um, and it's kind of divided between us.
0: Sure. So, So in the world of cytogenetics, in the last 10 minutes or so, in the world of cytogenetics, what do you what do cytogeneticists um, disagree on? Or what are the points of disagreement or debates? Or, um, I mean, I presume that we all agree that there is value in knowing the chromosomal abnormalities. Some of them may not affect treatment, but they can tell you the prognosis. Some of them might affect treatment now that you have a little bit more targeted therapies that target a particular uh like you know the bcr able for example when you when you see that it affects that so so i presume there's no disagreement there what what uh, what do if i put two cytogeneticists on the podium for a pro and a point and a counterpoint what would be top two or three things that there are arguments about or are you all agreeing on everything
1: um i think that and just speaking from experience trying um, to put to Linda Yasmin.
0: against Yasmin and Yasmin against Linda. That's my that's <laughs> no, my No, we've
1: so I think um, like for example, the size of the fish panels, um, we will probably disagree on that. Um, we tend to have fairly large fish panels. Um I think that um there are some that are much more conservative and will do only a limited number of tests, other ones may not actually impact patient care directly, but may be informative for the clinician and family. Um, I tend to um, view that more information may be better, but at the same, the counter argument would be, for example, like if it, maybe it's not totally necessary to move to a whole genome test for certain malignancies, when you get all of the information from a really fairly robust fish panel. So why spend you know thousands of dollars getting additional information plus the risk of an incidental finding that the patient may not really want to know when you can get all of the information from a good fish panel. So I think that there is that disagreement. Um, and also we hear this often that cytogenetics is dead. And this is something that Yasmin had brought up before. Um, I think that there is this perception that it's kind of an archaic kind of methodology. But as I mentioned, um, you know, the chromosome study, the karyogram is the first whole genome analysis of a cell on a single cell. And it's really exciting. And a lot of information can be captured. You don't need, you know, a fancy whole genome sequencing test every single time. It's like, if you need to go to the grocery store, you don't need to drive a Lamborghini, right? You can take a bike and it could be fine. It could be good enough. So I think that it's a lot of kind of economics and um, the, you know, the value, because ultimately somebody has to pay for an expensive test. And I think we have to be very careful with the resources that we have. So I think those are the things that I think about. I don't know, Yasmin, if you have other arguments. (laughs) You know, I I agree.
2: You know, Shadi, to your point, I think think there isn't a huge amount of disagreement amongst cytogeneticists. Um, The thing that I would like to, the things that I struggle with, I think it's probably my favorite question, right? I struggle with making sure that we are offering the right test to the right patient for the right disease at the right time. That is kind of my slogan, right? Um, And that has a lot of nuances. I struggle in um, the status of a PhD clinical provider not being able to bill as much as my MD colleagues can just because I have a PhD and they have an MD although we both do the same interpretive component of a reporting, right? Those are the challenges that laboratory geneticists, PhDs, whether cytogenetics or molecular genetics, really struggle with. What test to use for the right clinical you know, um, situation? Why can't we have the same billing rights as an MD?
0: So my last question, one for each one of you is, Linda, where do you want uh, cytogenetics as a field be in five years from now?
1: Well, I would like to know what, I hope in five years we will know what is the right test to use for various malignancies. So in the context of AML, I think our fish panels are robust and we don't need whole genome sequencing. But there are other malignancies where we do know that we're missing um, certain lesions using FISH testing. I hope that in five years, we can implement a, a good whole genome sequencing test that can detect all of the different kinds of chromosomal abnormalities that we're interested in and that it could actually improve patient care. This is what my hope in five years can be for cytogenetics. I think ultimately, you know, we probably, while as Yasmi mentioned, cytogenetics is a science, um, I think that there is some confusion about cytogenetics versus molecular genetics. Um, within our laboratory, we're essentially just the genomics laboratory, so we're kind of combined. Um, I hope in five years that, that those silos are kind of taken down and yeah. we are functioning as a genomics laboratory in a unified manner.
0: Yes, mean what questions I should have asked that I did not ask?
1: No,
2: I think I think this was an amazing discussion, and and we really do um, appreciate the you know the opportunity to talk to you about things that we're certainly passionate about. Um, I think you know if you were asked to ask me what would. I love to see in in terms of cytogenetics in five years. I think I would like to um, make sure that we recruit more young minds to this field, make sure that they understand that that science is still valuable for patient care um, and also, you know ask them to 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 join in this profession it's a very we have the privilege of doing patient care on a regular basis as phds so we use our our expertise in troubleshooting in in the hypothesis driven um, testing right um, to to do very direct patient care and I really hope that that through I be through your podcast and and other venues to let them know that there's a huge profession out there that could be very fulfilling um, and to keep trying to understand all aspects of, geno- of genomics, cytogenetics and molecular genetics so that you can arrive to the right test for the right patient. So that, that, that's my hope is to recruit more people.
0: I'm really fascinated by this. I think for listeners, hopefully they understand uh, the importance of this because there are so many diseases that we need to understand the cytogenetic profile. Uh, But I hope they also understood the level of training that you go through to get where you are. Linda did two postdocs, not only one. And I also hope they realize that um you're obviously a very important integral member of the team I, I remain flabbergasted by the number of few hundred cytogenetics given how big the country is and the number of hospitals and how important the test is to make these decisions i can understand that um you know i mean folks who might say, we do the whole genome, if I get all the information, because, because at the end of the day, I think doing the whole genome has become cheaper every year. I, I totally understand. It was very expensive at some point, but you could do it significantly cheaper. And who knows? I mean, I don't know how much the cost of cytogenetics, but, you know, there are insurance. It's a, it's a whole new, uh, you know, can of warmth. We can't really open it, but uh, I've been really, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that we can share this broadly with everybody who listens and beyond.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, I, I guess if I could have one last message for the listeners would be that, you know, if you happen to be a PhD student, or you're in a postdoc, to really consider this as a really exciting and and wonderful career it has provides a lot of job stability you interact with amazing colleagues i truly feel so grateful that i serendipitously fell into it It, it's one of the probably luckiest um experiences in my life and it's really it's just great so i think that the listeners could also um don't be shy to reach out to us too directly Um, and um, we would be happy to discuss the career further with them.
0: Well, they can connect with you through the website, through the podcast, through our YouTube. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Vaughan bon and Akari, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. And cytogenetics field is not dead and will not die. And it's going to stay alive as long as we are alive. That's how it's yeah. going to go.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. This was so fun. Really appreciate
0: it. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and tuning in for Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know how I am doing. And send me a note on my Twitter feed at Shadi Navhan by direct messaging me there. Don't forget to watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Navhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and subscribe to the show, rate the show, and refer to the show. Let your friends and colleagues know about the show. If you have not ordered my book, Toxic Exposure, you need to log into your Amazon account, Barnes Noble account any place you have a bookstore nearby and go ahead and buy Toxic Exposure. It is my first book. It is a true story. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you letting me know what you think of these podcasts and of the book. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Khalil Gibran, who is a Lebanese poet. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.